Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke with Heather Haying and Brett Weinstein. Heather is an evolutionary biologist and Brett served as a professor of biology at Evergreen State College. They host the Dark Horse podcast and their latest book, A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, Evolution and the Challenges of Modern Life is out now. Now that Under the Skin is on Apple Podcasts, please leave a review there. It helps us and we read them out sometimes. This bit of the podcast that we chose, by the way, this is all about like evolution. It's a subject I'm pretty interested in. I don't mean, I don't mean just generally evolution. I mean the way that we evolved and how it may be at odds with the way that we live now. That's, I guess, the raison d'etre of the book. And it's a pretty good conversation. I know, of course, you might have heard of Brett because of some more controversial conversations that he has in the online space. But this one we focus on his book that he wrote with Heather. In this bit of it, what do we talk about, Jen? Myth and uh, what uh, constitutes a myth, a myth and if capitalism is a myth. Because you say capitalism is a myth, is our myth of our culture. And they say, no, it's not been around long enough. <laughs> I think I'm right. <laughs> if you'd like to listen to the rest of this podcast and all of my weekly Under the Skin podcasts, all you have to do is subscribe to Luminary on Apple Podcasts or download the Luminary app. Also, I have a meditation podcast called Above the Noise on Luminary 2. In this part, we talk about, as Jenny just told you, that stuff. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Everything that you're saying about um, myth suggests that it is an important myth as story, myth as guide, myth as template. It suggests that it's a sort of an important component. And like we do, we don't, as I sort of say with like um, 12 step stuff, um, you know, 12 steps with regard to recovery is like we have a program of recovery. Like it's, um, there are abstract aspects, but they, there are concrete steps. You do this, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. And I say like, um, you, you already have a program. You have a program before you come into the program of recovery. Your program is a sort of a set of beliefs, some conditioning, a set of behaviors that are sometimes almost automatically triggered. Someone says this to me, I'm going to respond in this way. Someone makes me feel like this, I'm going to respond by doing that. It's all like I'm on rails, you know, like it's already it's predetermined, even if not in that way that's neurologically often described about the time lapse between decisions and actions and all that stuff. It just seems like de facto on rails, you know. And I, I feel like that the culture has a myth. The cultures, the cultural myth that we live within now, I like, you know, at least my understanding, and I'm certainly willing to learn more, is that it's economically driven, that if the, if there is a profit motive, then we can ignore other side effects. And that that I would say that other ideals have been accrued in order to support that telos, like that from you know agriculture onwards so this is good for this strata of society but it's not really good for everybody it's not good for everybody's diet to sort of have monocultures but it is good for this group and this group make all of the decisions so it's good ultimately and how do you feel about that announcement because it certainly wasn't a question <laughs> well we make an argument in the book for a model of how the mythology that guides us comes about it's an evolutionary process and i think the way to describe it 
is through the following recognition. You cannot write a myth. It's never been done. You can write a story, and then over time, selection modifies that. If the story is way off, right, it ceases to exist. It doesn't carry through time because those who listen to it do worse than those who don't. To the extent that it has value, that value gets shaped, and it can get shaped in many different ways. And so you have sectarian difference in all of the major belief systems. And those sectarian differences may be adapted to different realities on the ground, different habitats. They can be differences of opinion over which parts of the myth are important and selection will sort out which one, which uh, group had it closest to right because they will flourish. But the point is, it is not in any vague sense that these myths are playing this important role in guiding us. That is why we have a brain that takes on myths. That is why our mind focuses upon them. And what you're describing as the mythology of capitalism isn't a myth. It can't be a myth because it hasn't stood the test of time. This is all so new that we have no idea where the wisdom is. And this is the problem. We have to recognize that the novel stuff requires a kind of caution that things that are ancient do not. Now, in our circumstance, there's a different kind of caution that you have to use with things that are ancient. It may be things that were true, that led to human flourishing in the past, are now um, out of place, right? Things that were useful to believe may now be harmful. But these two kinds of precaution are very important in recognizing where we are. But at the very least, we should look at the um, the central narrative surrounding things like what we're calling uh, capitalism here and say, we don't know how that plays out. We don't know what happens when we uh, reduce all of these functions to things that one can source a la carte in the market, right? We don't know the answer, but we have reason to be concerned. So just to be clear, humans have written all of our myths, but when we wrote them, they weren't myths. You can't, you can't bring a story into the world that is already mythical. You are, you are arguing and we argue in the book, right? It, it requires the test of time and, you know, and basically being tried and tested in the environments in which it exists. And if it lasts, it becomes mythical. And, you know, part, part of what we need is modern myths that are actually unifying, but precisely the problem is that we cannot, that no one can bring into the world a story that is brand new and that is instant myth. It needs, it needs to play in the world a little bit. And the world is so hyper novel and changing so fast. And we are all simultaneously global and each our own little bunker that it is very hard to find the unifying myths for today. I think the problem is that things that are written look superficially alike, right? A myth may come to you in the form of a book, right? which suggests an author. But you can make the same error with respect to things like genes or genomes. Genomes accumulate things of value and they jettison things that have turned out to be costly and they become capable of the things that they do over time through this process of filtering. And the creation of a meaningful, a useful myth is that same process. So, you know, the... Uh, the Lord of the Rings may ultimately turn out to be the basis of myth, right? 
it's an excellent narrative and it contains ancient pieces of myth. It, it uses them and it adapts them to different circumstances and whether that turns out to be useful is something we will find out. Um, but, but the idea that just because it comes in the form of a book that it has an author isn't inherently right. And in fact, um, we need to think about these things as uh, basically created through a process of sculpting or filtering rather than authoring. If so, are you suggesting, I don't feel that you are, but that if a myth survives, it is therefore an effective and successful myth, could that be argued then for sort of Abrahamic religions that they are successful myths? Or do you not think we have the correct scale due to our you know individual and even cultural limitations, temporally, I mean, to make such an assessment? Perhaps a myth could be successful for getting you this far, but not further you know are you suggesting that the myths some of the myths we have like you know say like you know some like um you know like another i guess he's an evolutionary biologist richard dawkins would attack in particular you know monotheism and or, or the idea of god full stop um without perhaps um observing that there is the the, the efficacy of those myths um, religions are unambiguously adaptations, right? The Abrahamic religions being one excellent example. These are myths that have been passed through time because they facilitated the well-being of the people who held these belief systems. The fact that they're within each of these traditions is a lot of disagreement over how to interpret these texts is, again, very much like the variation that we see within creatures between populations. So uh, what I can say is evolutionary biology has been very slow to wake up to this fact. And this is one of the central points that we make in the book is that if you do not understand human beings as a very special kind of creature, one in which the genome has been favored to offload most of the work of adjusting our behavior to the software layer. Rather than being programmed at birth, we argue that we are the blankest slate selection has ever produced and that there's a very good reason for that. And it has to do with the fact that you can be loaded with a different software program depending upon where and when in time you live. And those software programs come about through an evolutionary process that is not haphazard. It is a process that allows us to switch which niche we inhabit. So your ancestors may have been uh, hunters of marine mammals and you may move inland and switch to terrestrial mammals or you may innovate farming. And this is a process that one has to do well, right? You can't go through a generation and starve to death and reboot. You have to get through every moment in time to the next one. And so that process whereby we bootstrap new software is the most important phenomenon to understand if you want to, to see what human beings are and why we function the way that we do. Just to get back to your the statement to which Brett was responding, uh, yes, the Abrahamic religions absolutely have been adaptive and are, um, we would argue, at the level of myth that has been successful for humans. Are they sufficient to move us forward now in the 21st century? Probably not. Do they have pieces in them that are um, maybe not necessary because not all humans in, in employ them, but uh, valuable to many people? 
Absolutely. Many, many parts of them uh, retain their value. Uh, but almost, we can say about almost all of our ancient texts, religious or secular, the American constitution is another example of something that is so extraordinary and yet also not fully up to the challenges of the 21st century. We cannot expect any ancient text to fully tell us what it is that we need to be doing now because no one from times past could have foreseen what we're living right now. Given the temporal restrictions that we all operate within, is it possible that all of these myths are kind of like, um, in a sense, quite restrictive? Because my, you know, my concurrent question is that the fact that there appear to be perennial truths that are universally expressed if bearing certain cultural inflections could suggest a kind of a type of universal, a type of universal, some referent outside of time and space that is expressing itself through form. Now, I know that's not the way you guys see things. So, so like, um, I wonder then if uh, how we would bring together the idea that, you know, that, that perennialism could be seen to suggest universalism. And I suppose you would sort of look at if we can adapt to hunting mammals and adapt to agriculture, that there is something sort of robust and able to withstand novelty that perhaps will, you know, that there must be a kind of a certain templates, uh, ideological templates that that would imprint. Right, like, but 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 the, the kind of simultaneous opposing question, which is a weird way to give you questions, I, I recognise that two opposing forces simultaneously as as a set of questions. Because you know, on the one hand, I'm saying, is there some sort of perfect godlike thing expressing itself in a kind of C.S. Lewis way through our bellies, telling us, "Don't do that, do do that, that's right, that's wrong, don't do that." This, you know, some sort of code implied through creed. Is it also possible that, you know, well, sort of actual, that um, that all of this is that our entire scale and spectrum of time is sort of a collective subjective experience that is taking place in such a sort of a minute, tiny little speck of time and space that all of the things that we attribute values to are just sort of um, all taints on the palette of chaos? If you're enjoying this conversation, join me over at Luminary on Apple Podcasts for the rest of our discussion and for all the latest episodes of Under the Skin. And by God, there's enough of them. Hundreds, aren't there, Jenny? Yeah, 205 of these. 205, all on Luminary and some great ones coming up and some great ones already done.